host of The Writer's Voice, and my guest today is Ursula Wong. How are you, Ursula? Hi, I'm great. How are you today, Linda? Doing fine. Ursula has a unique way of approaching her writing, and she uses unique traditions, and she does her research uniquely. So that's going to be pretty much what we're talking about today. But first, Ursula, show us your most recent book, Gypsy Amber. My baby, Gypsy Amber. <laughs> Number five in the series, right? Number five and number six is on the way, but Ooh. we'll see how easy that is to come out. <laughs> well, tell us about the first five in the series. It's a five book series and it's about essentially Lithuania, Eastern Europe and their interactions with Russia. So it starts uh, with a very little known World War II story of Lithuanian farmers. Of course, Lithuania is on the south shore of the Baltic Sea, it's near Poland. But Amber Wolf, the series starts with Amber Wolf, and this is the story of farmers who literally traded their pitchforks for automatic weapons to fight the Soviet army that was occupying Lithuania during World War II. It focuses on that resistance. You know, we hear about the French resistance. This was a different story, and it was an intense and very, very difficult time. That's the start of the series. And then the next book, book two, Amber War, goes into the post-war situation where after World War II ended, the situation, the resistance in Lithuania and actually in the Baltic countries just continued. There was no gap. They just mm -hmm. kept fighting the Soviet occupiers until they realized, uh, you know, it was a hopeless David. And, they always knew it was a David and Goliath story, but it trailed off into a very reluctant acceptance of the, of the Soviet uh, occupation. And then book three, Amber Widow, goes into more modern topics involving Russia. And mm -hmm. uh, so Widow is about nuclear waste that was stolen from the Ignalina nuclear power plant in Southern Lithuania and hidden in the woods right okay. before the Soviet breakup. Yeah. And so it's a story stemming from that fact and what people with the resistance in their hearts might do with uh, some nuclear waste. And the next book, number four, is uh, Black Amber. And this is about, um, it's a modern day story. It's about the pipelines that Russia and Germany are building under the Baltic Sea to bring natural gas directly into the European energy grid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just goes into all of the politics that are still going on. The pipeline is not finished, mm -hmm. but it goes into that whole manifestation. And it talks about what cyber terrorism against a pipeline might be. Okay, very interesting. And then Gypsy Amber goes into Central Asia. And now the reason I, Lithuania is still heavily involved. Lithuania plays in uh, all of the books, but I used Central Asia, specifically Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan is the center part of Gypsy Amber because uh, when I traveled there and when I mm -hmm. studied about it, I was so taken with the difference in the reaction to the Soviet occupation. So Central Asia was part of the USSR. Lithuania and the Baltic countries were part of the USSR, but Lithuania and the Baltic countries resisted the occupation. Mm -hmm. For Central Asia, particularly Uzbekistan, they felt the Soviets were a good thing their lifestyle improved. And I wanted to showcase that because it was so strange when I first heard it, mm -hmm. that I wanted to just really reinforce that, you know, these different backgrounds led to a totally different perception of what this Soviet government meant for these, these two different populations. I thought it was very interesting. So I wrote about it. So this fiction series, obviously, you have to instill it with 
research and with people who are real. So tell us about that, because you've said you've used some Christmas traditions and some other things that you know about to infuse into your books to make them obviously more appealing. Well, I try to make them more appealing. You know how that goes. We do our best. But yeah, so the whole series started quite a while ago, years and years ago. My uncle was in Europe during World War II. He was a soldier in the U.S. Army. And of course, our background is Lithuanian, where mm -hmm. our ancestry is Lithuanian. My grandparents were born there. My great-grandparents were born there and so forth. So that's our legacy. And Uncle Frank was in Europe. He met a lot of DPs, a lot of uh, displaced persons, a lot of Lithuanians who fled Lithuania, fled the Soviets. And he kept in touch with them. So the war ended. He came back to the United States. He went to law school. He was an attorney. He had a life. He died. I went through his papers and found manuscripts. And these were manuscripts written by, I think, the people that he kept in touch with over the years who were eventually in a point where they could address what happened to them during the war and were doing their memoirs. Now, some of them were indeed first-person memoir. Others were stories. There was a, a memoir about a priest in a prison camp. There was a tremendous trove of information there. And I read it and I read it again and I read it again. And this particular story about the early days, the, the Soviet occupation in Lithuania in 1944, beginning in 1944, that really caught my attention. So it took me a couple of years to validate the facts of that story because I really didn't know anything about it. I mean, none of us really did unless we had a very, very strong tie. And of course, you know, by the time I was born, you know, my family had been in the United States for 60 years. So I did research. And then by the time I finished that research and absorbed those manuscripts, I was on to my own series. So that's how it evolved. But you know, the traditions, can I tell you about a few traditions, Linda? Sure, sure, sure. Okay. <laughs> so I'm still in the glow of the holidays here. And there's a big Lithuanian tradition called Kuchas. Uh -huh. And it's a Christmas Eve dinner. So it's 12 courses of non-meat okay. food. So it's a lot of potato salad and beet salad. Herring prepared on um, different ways, a lot of fish. You know, it's the kind of food that kids may not want to eat, but it's considered... <laughs> good luck to have a taste of everything. Mm -hmm. So with kuchas, it takes days to prepare the food. And then when you set the table, first you put down straw, bits of straw. Mm -hmm. Then you put a white linen over the table and then you put the place settings. And there are place settings for the people in the family who have passed. So they're still with you. So you, in other words, you make a physical place for them in addition to the spiritual place. Exactly. That's so neat. And then the People gather, the kids might open a present, you know, they have this big sumptuous meal and there's some games afterward. You pick a straw from underneath the tablecloth and the person with the longest straw has a long life. The person with the short straw, not so long. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and then unmarried women mm -hmm. throw a shoe. They take off one of their shoes and they throw it at the front door. And if the shoe points inward, inward toward the room, that means they're not going to get married next year. Okay. If it points outward, that means they will be leaving the home and they will be getting married in the new year. What happens if it falls sideways? <laughs> <laughs> that would happen to me and I'd have to wonder forever. <laughs> That's a very good question. But, but after the meal, everybody goes to midnight mass, but nobody cleans up. So you leave the food and you leave the dishes on the table. Okay. And when you're gone, the dead come back and they have their own kuta celebration. That's the thinking. Okay. 
But there's another little twist to this. So um, while you're at midnight mass, the minute that the clock passes midnight into Christmas day, the animals speak. So I gather they're speaking Lithuanian, which is not an easy language, <laughs> but they speak. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> if you leave church and sneak into the barn to listen to those animals, and if the, you actually hear them, you will drop dead. Oh, really? So is this fact or fiction? I don't know. Nobody wants to find out, I'm sure. <laughs> There's no one alive to say if it's true or false. So well, I was thinking, gee, I'm going to sneak into the barn until you said that part. I would be the one to sneak into the barn, but no, not now. <laughs> you know, the question I had when I was doing this series was, how do you add this unique stuff into a story? How do you add it to historical fiction? You know, if you're writing a novel about a, a mystery or, um, you know, as in my case, a World War II story that's been fictionalized with dialogue and so forth, how can you add some of this tradition? So you can't just switch over to a scene where the animals are talking. I mean, that really isn't going to work. But you can do tricks. For example, you can introduce a gnarled ancient woman from the old country, you know, dressed in black, going into this luxurious tea house where her adult daughter waits for her with her boyfriend. And this gnarled woman goes in and she is intent on telling this new boyfriend what it really means to be a Lithuanian. So she's sitting there and she raises her finger. Oh, the animals. So you can do fun stuff like that to add the, but you can add characters like that. You can add unique characters that, that tell of the quirks, the tradition, the, the quirks in the tradition through dialogue and so forth. That's a, mm -hmm. that's a really. Well, now I would imagine the stories when you were saying earlier, when you were doing your research, that I found that intriguing, how you're reading memoirs, you're reading notes, you're reading stories, you're reading, and I mean, I'm sure some right. of it you didn't know whether it was real or whether it was a story. I would imagine that that would probably lend a real authenticity to what you were writing because you would have the language, you know, you would have the words that they would use, the phrases, just a whole lot of setting that you might not otherwise know about if you, if you didn't live there. And obviously, how could you live there if you're back in pre-World War II? No, but you're absolutely right. Idiomatic phrases or translations of the quirky expressions, that's huge. I think that really adds a dimension to especially historical writing. The Lithuanians have a phrase for a person, we would call them a clueless but the Lithuanians might say that mm -hmm. his expression is free of intelligence. Okay. <laughs> you know, the French might say, il est bête comme les pieds, he's stupid like his feet. But that quirkiness, yep. that, that way of looking at uh, parts of life, I think lend a lot of meaning to the story and lend some dimension to the culture that you're writing about. The Russians have a great phrase too for something different. They say things will be chocolate when things are bad and okay. it, you've turned the corner and things are going to get better, the Russians say things will be chocolate, meaning it's going to get better. You will have money. You will be able to buy chocolate. How can you possibly be sad when you're eating chocolate? All those unique things that right. if you don't know the history of it, you don't get it. Now, one of the other questions that I want to ask you is each of your book titles has amber in it. So tell us the significance of that. Because coming up I with titles is really difficult. <laughs> so this is amber from, from Lithuania. And it's essentially petrified pine resin. Mm -hmm. Now the museums, uh, the Swedish National Museum has this piece of amber. I saw it with this perfectly preserved bug. I and mean, now we're talking about Jurassic Park kind of inspiration. But 
but amber is to Lithuania what jade is to China. So it's a it's a symbol. It's a it's um it's used. Okay. It women wear it, men mm -hmm. wear it at any kind of cultural mm -hmm. or traditional event, and I love it. I I just think it's unique. And there's a mm -hmm. there's so much uh, difference in the color and the textures and so forth. And if you find little mm -hmm. bits of uh, leaves or something, it makes it all the better. The imperfections make it better. Why don't you hold that book cover up for us one last time? There we go. Your Gypsy Amber number five in the series. If people want to buy this book or learn more about you, they can go to your website at ursulawong.wordpress.com. And one of our fellow writers says that book, I'm guessing, is available where all good books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> it's available on Amazon in print and online Barnes yeah. & Noble, Kobo, Amazon, uh, you name it, iBookstore. Okay. All those places. Well, thanks so much for visiting with us this week. I know that I've had a lot of requests for people to be put in touch with authors who write historical fiction, new to them because they haven't met them. So I'll be sure to share your name um, and hope you'll come back. Well, let me say a phrase in Lithuanian in parting. Okay. Lemingu noyoyu matu. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Thank you.